Good morning. If you would, join me in your copy of God's Word, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We'll start reading in just a moment at verse 16. John 19, 16. I feel like saying it is, it is very good to see all of you this morning. This always seems like the time of year that we can feel summer turning into fall uh, as our, our church's uh, travel schedule starts to come to an end and we come back together. Uh, it feels like that to me as I'm looking out this morning, so it's, it's exciting. Uh, we start to look together this morning. If you see where we begin at verse 16, you know, we start to look... Uh, at our Lord in his crucifixion. Uh, in a moment, we'll read these verses down uh, through verse 30 together, but our focus this morning will be on verses 16 to 22. Uh, but what I'd like us to do before we read is to walk through it just quickly together, take sort of a preemptive walk uh, through what we're going to read in this text this morning. It's helpful to have a visual in mind sometimes, especially as we're starting a new section. Uh, So what do we see here as we start at verse 16? Here's what we're going to see. In verse 16, Jesus is going to be handed over to the Roman soldiers. They have already beaten him a great deal over the last several hours, but now he is theirs. The other Gospels tell us that at this point, Jesus finds further mockery and further suffering at the hands of the soldiers. In verse 17, he's made to bear his own cross. That's the cross beam that would have gone over his shoulders and his arms affixed to. Uh, That's the beam that will be itself affixed to the vertical pole when they arrive at the site for crucifixion. Uh, Many have noticed how much the image here of Christ carrying his own cross to his death uh, reminds us of the image of Isaac. In Genesis 22, as he carried the wood upon which he was going to be sacrificed. And John doesn't mention it, but we know that Jesus only makes it a part of the way on this walk before he's too weak to carry the beam any further. And a man named Simon is forced to carry it the rest of the way for him. Uh, This beam was not normally an impossible burden for a grown man to carry. It speaks of how much blood Jesus has lost by this point. Um, They send him in this way. He arrives at the site. It's called Golgotha, over the place of the skull. And in verse 18, here in John's gospel, he simply names the event. He says, there they crucified him. John spares us the gore, and so will I in a large sense. But suffice it to say that crucifixion, in its use of intricate knowledge of the human body, has been called the zenith of the torturer's art. That's wrapped up in this simple statement, there they crucified him. Uh, Above him we'll see on the main beam is fixed a sign. This was a typical thing to do when someone was crucified. Uh, His crime would be written on a placard of some sort and either carried by someone else in front of him as he walked to the place of crucifixion or hung around his neck as he went. And then when he got there, it would be affixed onto the pole for everyone to see. It's a good reminder to us that this is all supposed to serve as a message, isn't it, to the Roman Empire, a message to everyone else. They need to know what behavior they need to avoid in order to avoid this fate. And the Roman officials are not slow to provide that knowledge for them. And there Jesus hangs. Just outside the city of Jerusalem, where a lot of Jews pass by, he's near enough to the ground that the sign above his head is easy to read. And men and women are passing by, shaking their heads, throwing the occasional insult, and then going on their way. This is what we see this morning. And maybe we start with a question. When we see all of this, when we see him in this way, in our mind's eye, hanging on the cross, are we seeing a picture of defeat or a picture of victory? 
Well, we know the answer to that question, right? What's the answer to that question? This is a picture of victory. Did it look like victory to the people who were passing by? Blake just read for us the Old Testament prophecy that speaks to this exact moment. Isaiah 53 and verses 3 and 4 describes Jesus as, quote, one from whom men hide their faces. It says, he was despised. We esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It did not look like victory, and yet we call it victory. We call it the glory of Jesus put on display. And one of our tasks this morning is to be reminded of why we would say things like that about a scene like this. Why we would say them and why we're right to say them. We will, I think, linger at the cross for several weeks. Uh, And this week, though, as we look at verses 16 to 22, uh, there are a couple of details in particular that I would have a stop on here and sort of fixate on and consider it together. Specifically, they are the the details of, first, where the text tells us Jesus goes with his cross on his back. And then second, the detail of the sign that went out before him and was affixed above him. So I have those in mind as we read. Uh, I'll be reading John 19, verse 16, all the way down to verse 30. I'll read from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Speaking of Pilate, the text continues in this way. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather... This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Two details for us to consider together this morning. The first comes in verse 17. What I want us to notice is the way that John describes Jesus' action there. In a way, it's very simple. It's easy to even brush past. After he's handed over to the soldiers, he says of Jesus, and he went out. They took Jesus, and he went out to the place called Golgotha. Jesus went there. And for a moment, let's ignore the word out. 
and just consider the word went. You might not have noticed how maybe odd it is that John would word it this way. He doesn't say they led Jesus out or that they took Jesus out. Instead, John puts Jesus as the active subject there. He went. It is a little odd. And none of the other gospel writers do that. They phrase it in those natural ways we would expect. Luke 23, 26, they led him away. Mark 15, 16, the soldiers took him away. Matthew 27, 31, the soldiers led him away to crucify him. But John decides to say, Jesus went. In just this subtle linguistic way of putting Christ in the driver's seat here, even as he is under arrest and being let out. So it's a little strange in that way. It is, I think, less strange when we remember that John's gospel has emphasized this particular point repeatedly. What have we seen as we've gone through the study of John? We have seen over and over again the emphasis on Jesus' control over the circumstances. The point of it being Jesus' will that is being accomplished. This fits exactly with that emphasis. It fits well, for example, with the point that Christ himself emphasized back in chapter 10. John 10, 18, you remember Jesus declared, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. It gives us reason to to remind ourselves for a moment why he has done this, why he has taken this deliberate active role of going, as he does, to the cross. Even if we limit ourselves to what John has reported, we get a really clear picture about the reasons for which Christ is doing what he's come to do. Uh, And you can see it with with a simple three-step look. If we just go backwards in John's gospel, three steps, it's easy to see Christ's intentions. So if we go back first to John 12, 27, he has just spoken of how near these things are, and he says there, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus has been conscious that the purpose he is marching toward is a purpose that is, he says, troubling to the soul. He doesn't want saving from this trouble. It's why he came. He has come to endure this trouble. If we take another step back, back to chapter 6, John 6, 51, Jesus said this quite controversially, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is expecting to provide for mankind in a way that involves the giving of himself. The third step back could take us to chapter 3, John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You hear there, Jesus is expecting to be whatever this means. He's expecting to be lifted up for the eternal life of those who believe in him. I think it's helpful here to have something written in the margin right beside, if you're one who likes to write notes in your Bible, beside that statement in John 3.14, it can be helpful to have written there John 12, 32 and 33. And that's because Jesus repeats that statement there in John 12, 32 and 33 about being lifted up. But there, John goes out of his way to point out that Jesus was saying that, quote, to indicate the kind of death by which he was going to die. That's very helpful. We understand what Jesus himself had in mind as he said, the Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus has known that a crucifixion is coming to him. But in light of our Even the wording of our text in chapter 19, verse 17, and you can come back there if you've walked with me. In light of the wording we're seeing here this morning, it might be better to say it's not that a crucifixion was coming to him, but that he was actively and deliberately moving to a crucifixion. 
Throughout his life, throughout his ministry, he knew where he had fixed his face. And whether in this case of saying that he went out, whether that's deliberate on John's part or just sheer providence, John's wording emphasizes that fact that Christ is the one going here of his own will and his own purpose. But now consider what's added even further by the word that we have ignored here so far. We've skipped over the word out. It doesn't just say that Jesus went. It says Jesus went out. That is to say, literally, Jesus leaves the gates of Jerusalem in order to go out to the place where he will be crucified. And that fact on its own is spoken to in the New Testament and given theological significance. Because there's, a, there's an actual reality that Christ is living and embodying as he goes out of Jerusalem to suffer. We read about this in the book of Hebrews. Let me read to you Hebrews 13, starting in verse 11. He writes this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And then here's the connection he makes, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is a reference to the instructions that we find in Leviticus 16. That's the chapter that outlines for the Jews how sacrifices are supposed to happen that are made for the atoning of sin. Uh, Those instructions culminate at the end of that chapter. Leviticus 16, 27 says this. He's been talking about bulls, and he's been talking about goats. And then he says this, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, both sin offerings, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. Fire, of course, symbolizing this judgment of God outside of of the camp. This is the connection that the writer to the Hebrews makes. Jesus is going out. And in going out, he is living out the reality that every sin sacrifice that has ever been offered had pointed to as their bodies are carried outside of the camp to be burned. What we're seeing here from our Lord is the fulfillment of every one of those countless pictures that God had provided through these commands. As Jesus is now brought outside of the camp to be slaughtered, to die, in fact, as a sacrifice for sin. This is what he has been marching toward all along. He said many things, he did many things to prepare us, he taught us, He revealed the divine nature of God to us in his person and in his teaching. He revealed the will of God to us, the law of God to us. Upon the proclamation of his person and work will be the community of God's people in its construction. As Christ said to the disciples, on this rock of that confession, I will build my church. This is what he has spoken and shown and demonstrated But nobody can draw near to God who is stained with sin. It doesn't matter what is taught and revealed, what we might come to know. If we stand in our sin, we have no access to the throne of the one perfect Holy One. We have a problem, and it's a problem that words cannot solve. We've got a great children's book through those doors available, as are the rest of them, for you to check out and take home and bring back. I'll just mention that again since it came up. Uh, A a great children's book written by R.C. Sproul called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. Uh, It makes this exact point. This priest is called by the king to come and travel a great distance and stand before the king. But by the time he gets there in his journey, he is absolutely caked in mud. He's filthy. And he's heartbroken about this. And in the story, what happens is the kings, the king's son exchanges his own spotless robe for the priest's filthy one so that the man can stand in the king's presence. This is the story. It's a great story. Good illustrations. I recommend it. Why has our Lord 
deliberately positioned himself to be brought outside the camp, to bleed to death, to become a curse, and to face the judgment of God. In other words, what kind of a picture are we seeing here as he goes and goes out like this? Why did he do it? He did it because he loves us. He's doing all of this in order to make atonement for our sins. A need that we have that we can never meet. It does not matter what you do. It does not matter what you think falls in your good deeds column. It's absolutely irrelevant as you stand before God in your sins. The prophets of old speak of this sort of problem that we have and the impossibility in us to do anything about it. When they write that our Best deeds are filthy rags before the Lord. They are of no value in the atoning of sins. Jesus came to die, to pour out his blood, that atonement would be made for the sins of his people. You think of it that way and you suddenly realize what we're watching here in these verses as our Lord goes and does this, is we're watching the very foundations being laid for the entirety of the New Testament's declaration. To us. It's upon this reality that everything hangs and is based. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake, and it is going to say, He made Him. This is speaking of the Father and the Son. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we're watching Him do. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How does this happen? Comma, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation has to do with the putting away and appeasing of divine wrath the anger, the right, just anger and wrath of God against sin. Paul speaks of the Lord Jesus here and what he is doing as God's gift that he himself might be propitiated in his righteous wrath and judgment. Something that is received by faith. Or think of this simple statement that I think does well to describe how much this is foundational to everything. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 as he opens his letter, and he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Such is the significance of the event that we're watching, that we're holding in our mind's eye this morning. And such is the divinely intended purpose. This is why our Lord was sent. This is why our Lord has, has been pleased to come, that he might go and not just teach and give an example, but leave the camp and become a curse for those who are his by faith. Now, that all sets us up well for, in fact, the second detail that comes to us in these verses this morning. It helps us, I think, to understand better the significance of the inscription that, Paul, or that Pilate writes on this sign. Look with me at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Doesn't mean he himself fixed it there. He wrote this. He ordered it that it go and that it be put up. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Now, as we've said already, this was not unusual. You've already heard the description of of these signs and their purposes, but I would remind you that its significance was to, to announce the crime this person is dying for. This sign is helpful to John's narrative for a number of reasons. One is that it confirms for us that it was in fact the charge of sedition against the state that he was convicted of here. The charge that Pilate investigated and knew to be false, the charge that the Jews, as we've seen, knew themselves to be false, but were hypocritically forcing through because they knew the pressure would work. This is the charge for which he is convicted and for which he's dying. This sign also does other things, though. 
it reveals some tensions here that I think we could hear in the narrative up to this point, in chapter 18, up to now, but it really puts it on display, the tension between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. We can tell in this that the wording by Pilate is something of a revenge act against the Jewish leaders who had essentially manipulated the situation. Do you see what they're frustrated about here? Verse 21, So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. They wanted clarified on the sign that he was dying for claiming to be the Jewish king. And they're upset because Pilate's wording makes it sound like he's dying for being the, the Jewish king. Many commentators have, have recognized, given descriptions that we have of Pilate, even from those who lived while Pilate lived, uh, many notice his reputation coming out in this Interchange. He was known to be a very vindictive man who did not like being challenged or crossed. One of the primary sources we get those things from is a historian named Philo who lived during this time. He was a contemporary of theirs. He described Pilate as a blend of self-will and relentlessness. It fits his persona very well to find him leaving the optics of this situation in a way that these Jews would be frustrated by. But the end of of this little power play, I mean, so you can see in that his motivation of why he would word it this way. But this is what's so perfect here, is that the end result of that causes one thing to stand out there as Jesus hang on the cross. It serves God's ends perfectly. Because guess what? Jesus is the king of the Jews. And the wording on the sign actually helps in a couple of ways, both to declare it, and to, in fact, put it on display, to display the reality behind it. The sign very much declares this reality, doesn't it? It's written trilingually on the sign. It's written in Aramaic, which is the common language of the region. It's written in Latin, which is the official language of the army. And it's written in Greek, which was like English is today, the universal language of the empire. Everyone who passes by is reading the king over this man. It declares it unambiguously, but it it goes even further than that. It doesn't just declare it. In a way that was not at all intended, this sign, very ironically, helps highlight the fact of it. The fact that it's his kingship that's actually on display in the event of the cross. Jesus is winning the war against the enemy of his people as their king as he hangs and dies on the cross. And it's really impossible for us to overstate the victory that he is winning in this moment. This is helpful for us to think through on a regular basis, because as we began, I asked you that question, is this a picture of victory or defeat? I do think it's naturally puzzling to us to call it a victory. So we have to remember why. That's the case. And maybe the best way to perceive it is to remember, just to remember your history, and to remember that this is the moment, as he hang there dying, this is the moment that we have all been waiting for. We've been waiting for it since the first day that sin entered into this world. We've been longing for something, suffering for lack of something, hoping for something, and we're watching that victory come. Adam and Eve sinned. Satan usurped control, and the world was plunged into a domain of darkness. And at that moment, when that reality first began on this earth, mankind heard the words, there is going to come a day when the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent's seed. Even as that crushing event costs that hero deeply. 
We need to be reminded of that aspect of what our Lord is doing here. Often, I, I personally, I think, tend to jump immediately in my mind as I think about the cross, only to the ways in which he is being the perfect sacrifice, or even the way in which he's being the perfect high priest, administering this sacrifice. The book of Hebrews emphasizes both of those realities. They're very important. But the realities that we find coming to a head, culminating here at the cross, go beyond even those. It goes beyond even the realities of priest and sacrifice. By laying his life down, mankind has finally found what God has always required. God relates to man as his image bearers, as his representatives on earth. God relates to man through the covenants that he enters with him. And God has always demanded a faithful covenant partner. We've seen both the relationship and the responsibility come together at crucial points in the story of history as we read the scriptures. God's son and God's appointed king. These are realities that we find coming up over and over again. Remember, Adam in the garden was the priest king, and he is called the son of God. And he was commanded, guard and keep this garden. And he failed to obey. And so he is shamed, and he is cast out of the garden. God calls Israel his people, and not just his people, but his firstborn son. Exodus 4 and Hosea 11 both speak of Israel as his firstborn son. Israel is given God's law and told to obey him. And again, the world sees failure. And Israel is shamed and cast out of the promised land. And then here comes Jesus in the fullness of time. And God audibly says from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He directs Jesus. And Jesus only always does what is pleasing to his Father. Philippians 2.8 speaks of him as obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so at last, what does the world find? It finds the one that God has always required. It finds the one who would be obedient in the calling and the place that God has placed him to lead his people. And by this obedience, the enemies of God are conquered. This is Christ exercising his role over us, not as priest, but as king. Jesus said of himself in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. I've always loved the Westminster Catechism's description of Jesus' work as our king. It defines it and it says this, Christ executes the office of a king. See if you find this helpful to list several things. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's well put. And where do we see that put on display? Well, we will see it as he returns in glory one day, conquering and bringing justice to mankind. But what we're finding this morning is that we have seen it. Right here at the cross, as he takes the power of Satan over us, which was what? What is the power that our enemy has over us? It's the power to accuse us of our sin before the throne of God. We see this display of his kingship at the cross as he strips our enemies, our accuser, of his power. This is exactly what Paul describes in Colossians 2.13. Listen to this. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by winking at sin and telling us it's no big deal after all. Is that how that verse continues? Can God wink at our sin and declare it forgiven? Not if he is just, not if he is God. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is how God has won the victory through his son. This is how he has conquered his enemies, disarmed his enemies. That disarming happened at the cross as the blood of Christ spilled and our sins were washed away so that there is no condemnation. There is no place for accusation because atonement has been made. This kingly victory is in Christ who is triumphing as the victorious king over all of those whose faith is in him. All of those who, by his work in their life, have turned from trusting in themselves to trusting in him entirely. So we've seen these two details. Him going out of his own volition, outside the camp, and going out with the, the word king around his neck and above his head. Now, put these together and let's consider here as we move toward closing. What have we seen? We have seen Christ, our Savior, going out to Golgotha, going out of the camp, suffering shame and reproach for us, and indeed bearing the weight and penalty of sins for us. We've seen him raised on that cross just beneath the word, King. It was the pinnacle of the exaltation of God's glory in salvation. But let's be sure we're clear that we're not denying as we speak of those things like that. That what we, what we see there is a shameful, shameful thing. As he, the Lord of glory, hangs there, bleeding, naked, dying, a cursed death. Going there required humility. It required a willingness to suffer reproach. And because of that, there is one thing that remains for us to do as we think about this particular text. There are two places in the New Testament where authors point us back to this picture. And in these two places I'm thinking of, they do not point us back to the cross primarily to direct us to worship. They don't do it primarily to describe Christ's greatness. They point us there as an example to follow. Now, how strange does that sound to our ears, looking to the cross as an example. We are not any of the things we've been describing here. We are not the king. We cannot atone for sins. But of course, it's not those things that we are told to imitate, is it, as we look at the cross. Look with me at these places. Look first to the end of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. And I'll read starting at verse 11. We read verses 11 and 12. I read it to you earlier. You might notice that. But now I want us to notice how verses 11 and 12 move into verses 13 to 16. Okay? So as we read, notice when we jump from 12 to 13. Starting at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see the progression. You see how he first focuses on the reproach that Jesus endured, and then he turns to us. And what does he say to us? He calls us to be ready to bear that reproach with him. Do you hear that call? Then verse 14 justifies it by pointing out that because of the things we've seen this morning, because we have been subdued by Christ and have been brought into his kingdom, and therefore we are no longer of the world, even as he is not of the world. The results of those realities that stem from his kingship are such that when we look around here, what do we find? We find no lasting city anymore. 
Ours is a city that is to come. And then verse 15, there's a command in light of that fact. He says, through him then let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Don't miss the string that ties this passage together. It is reproach that he is telling us to embrace as those who would follow Christ Jesus outside the camp. It is a willingness to identify with our Savior in his reproach. We are to go to him. We are to go outside of the camp to him. To do so will mean a decision, in the words of this passage of Hebrews, to offer as a sacrifice, verse 15, praise to God who has revealed himself in the person of his Son. If we are to be his, his reproach must become our reproach. Or to paraphrase paraphrase Romans 6, we must die with him if we are to live with him. Now take that and and bring it with you to the last place we'll look after Hebrews 13. Go to Matthew chapter 10. We've heard these ideas and this command in, in Hebrews 13. But as you get to Matthew 10, first find verse 38, and I'll ask you to do something that you won't hear me say often. Let's look at verse 38 without considering anything in the context here. Just look at it all by itself, no context. That's usually a bad thing to hear somebody say. Matthew 10, 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So there is Jesus, even before his own crucifixion, preparing us to follow after him, to take up our cross. But what does that actually mean? Take up your cross and follow me. Is our cross supposed to mean uh, the big problems and obstacles that I face in my life? Take them up and pursue me. Uh, Slay your Goliath. Is this the kind of thing he's talking about as he bids us take up our cross after him? To, To talk like that is to handle the scriptures like those who have no respect for the scriptures. Jesus is not mimicking modern-day motivational speakers here as he bids us take up our cross after him. He says this in a context. And if we care about handling and applying Christ's teachings rightly, then we will work to understand the point that he has been making. Right? This is, this is not a fortune cookie, this verse. It's the end of a series of statements he has been building toward. Verse 38 just brings those thoughts to a head. So look above verse 38. Look at what we read in the paragraphs leading up to that call. We see in verses 16 and 17 warnings about opposition. We see in verse 21 warnings about betrayal that we face. We read in verses 24 and 25 these words, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Here, the things he is predicting and preparing them for. As we get nearer to verse 38, we read things like verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then we reach the paragraph that contains verse 38. Starting at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a (coughs) daughter-in-law. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me. Is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me. Is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now we hear that call in the context of all that he has been preparing and describing and commanding. And what is the call? Take up your cross and follow me. It is the very call that we've been seeing in the the further reaches of Scripture this morning. He is telling us, be prepared to follow him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Whoever does not take his cross and follow him, whoever is not willing to love Christ enough to be identified with him, is not worthy of him. Now, as we've said, love of Christ is not the only thing that this calls us to. It can't be. It's not been that long since we've seen the example of Peter around that charcoal fire. And we observed that Peter did not hate Christ. He loved Christ. But he was not willing to bear the reproach of Christ because he was prideful. He was not accustomed to being hated and despised. And so what must come before the going out and willingness to bear reproach is there must be a willingness to humble myself before the plans and purposes of God. This is what it is to belong to the kingdom of God. Which is why Matthew 5 begins as it does, as it describes to us life in Christ's kingdom. And it begins with the Beatitudes. Statements of blessing upon the poor in spirit and the meek and those who mourn. This is the place the Lord must bring us before we are willing to follow him outside the camp and bear his reproach. Humility. The demands of Christ are an interesting thing for us to think about. Based as they are on the free offer of grace, based as they are on his having accomplished all righteousness, We agree with the scriptures that the the yoke of Christ Jesus is light. That's how he describes it. His yoke is light. But we also make no mistake. His demand upon us is a demand for our entire lives. His is a demand for all of us. There are sometimes more than others when that reality is impressed upon us. And usually it's in moments where our identity with Christ must show itself to mean that we have chosen to bear his reproach. What are we to be thinking as we face moments like that? Some of you in here know those moments very presently and very recently. Some of you are living in those moments right now. What are we to think about them and to think as we face them? Are we masochists as Christians? Are we pursuing pain and loss because we enjoy things like that? Christians are not masochists. We do what we do in obedience to our Lord for the same reason that he did it. There is this great line in Hebrews 12, 2, which says that we run our race, quote, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Isn't that interesting? We do it for the joy set before us. We walk after him with his promises in mind, that he will never leave us or forsake us. We walk after him with his disciples' words in mind. You remember when Christ asked them, do you want to go away too? Remember their answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And what's more, we remember his promise to them, which is a promise to us. In Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30, and we'll end with this this morning. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold 
Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. We must be ready to give everything to him. But he tells us there is nothing that we would give up to be with him that is not abundantly provided for in the kingdom and household of Christ. So that we really do pursue a life outside of the camp bearing his reproach out of joy that is set before us. We're pursuing joy as we follow him bearing our cross. Because we're reasonable people and the joy that he offers that is found in him is immeasurable. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Let's pray together. Father, we have only just begun this morning to look upon your beloved son, accursed and hanging on a cross. We see your love on display in his willingness to bear not only such torture, but such dishonor. And to think that he's willing to do such things in order to rescue men and women like us. It is impossible for us to fathom. Lord, we this morning who have come to know you by the gracious work of your spirit, we do look around us and see that here we have no lasting city. And we ask you to strengthen our boldness and our courage in our own time, that we would take great joy in walking outside the camp in order to join with our Savior in his reproach, full of his joy, full of his love, full of his steadfast commitment to the truth. We ask you, cause us to remember how this story ends so that as we walk with him, we do so full of joy and peace, not bitterness or cynicism. Help us to remember that by his death, our Lord has overcome the world. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.